This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Nightlight has partnered with Fan Roll Dice by Metallic Dice Games to offer an exclusive discount on one of their gorgeous dice sets that we've fallen in love with because of their satisfying weight and, let's just be honest, sparklies not to mention their impeccably constructed dice accessories. In one word, velvet. Visit fanrolldice.com, that's F-A-N-R-O-L-L-D-I-C-E dot com, and use our discount code NIGHTLIGHT for 10% off any new additions to your dice hoard. A portion of your purchase will come back to us and help support our shows. So go to fanrolldice.com with the discount code NIGHTLIGHT to get 10% off of any additions to your dice hoard. Hi, I'm Tanya Thompson, horror writer and creator of Nightlight, the Black Horror Podcast. Our story this week is from Nicole Sconyers. Nicole's work has been published in the fabulous horror anthology Sycorax's Daughters, which was edited by Linda Addison, Susanna Morris, and Kenitra Brooks. Here is The Stiffening by Nicole Sconyers, narrated by Sheree Stewart. I was eight years old when I realized that I never saw my mother sitting. Ever. Or lying in bed, or immersed beneath a blanket of suds in our old clawfoot bathtub. She was always upright. Afternoons would find her in the kitchen tending something on the stove or wiping down counters with a dish rag. This is how I remember her. Thick black hair spilling over broad shoulders and sturdy legs clad in a print skirt and drugstore stockings. She loved to cook, to bring a steaming and pungent plate of collard greens to the table, to serve my sister Trina and me a slice of her famous orange pound cake. Even though she was on her feet all day mixing batter at Xavier's Donuts, the sound of a metal spoon clanking against a pot usually met me and Trina when we came home from school. Older than me by three years, Trina was the more thoughtful sister. Mom, you work too hard. Sit down and let me fix you a plate, she would say. Mother brushed off Trina's concerns with a smile as she brought a bowl or a glass to the dining room table. That's all right, baby. You and Valise enjoy your free time. Then those lean, long legs carried her into the living room where she would pull back the curtains she had stitched by hand. Home from school, the other girls on the block would be practicing their drill routines in the street, or the staccato thumping of twin ropes on asphalt would drift in through the screen door as my neighbors play double dutch. They never invited me to join their games. Double-handed, I was called. That meant I turned rope too clumsily for their liking and out of rhythm. Mother never beheld this festival of flailing limbs from a chair by the window like our elderly neighbor, Miss Isabel, who wore wigs and scolded the neighborhood kids as if they were her own. 
nor did my mom recline on the front stoop, glass of two sweet iced tea in hand, chatting with Miss Irene or Mr. Alphonse, an unmarried couple who lived in the bungalow next to ours. She always stood, arms crossed in the middle of our bay window, as if she were controlling all activity on the street with a glance. Every girl tries to find her mother's handprint in her own life, whether to embrace it or slough it off. I was no different. Although Trina and mother were closer, I was the daughter who looked the most like her. My hairline mimicked hers, a fuzzy stream that meandered along my temples and ended at my ears in a vortex of tight curls. Moles like dark flowers dotted our cheeks, while Trina had the smooth brown skin of our father, long dead. Mother and I were often complimented for our long, dainty fingers that we inherited from my grandmother Hallie, who used to hang wash from a clothesline with wooden pins, and who once rode three buses to the valley every day to clean homes for white folks. This is where the similarities ended. The more I watched my mother, the more I realized I was not like her. I preferred reading Mad Magazine in my room to cooking, and I had no desire to pick up around the house. Serving other people bored me, but I could sit and squat and kneel, and I had never even seen my mom bend her legs. One night, my suspicions about my mother were confirmed. Unlike other eight-year-old girls I knew, my nose was always buried in books about ghosts and werewolves, and one particularly scary story caused me to awaken with a start. My bedroom was so small it could only fit my twin bed and a faux wood roll-top desk. My chamber, Trina called it. I gripped the covers. Even though I was alone in that tiny, airless room, it felt as if I had entered a world of shadows. My sister's snores in the room next door sounded like the wheezing of a hungry goblin. After the nightmare melted away, leaving its icy residue against my collarbone, I was too afraid to close my eyes. I needed my mom. When Daddy died the previous year, she discouraged us from coming in her bedroom at night. Y'all too big to be sleeping with me, she would say, which is why we had rooms of our own. I jumped out of bed, opened the door, and stepped into an artery of darkness. As I crept down the narrow hallway, there was no moonlight streaming through the bathroom window, no crackling glow visible beneath Mother's bedroom door from her Panasonic television. Just blackness. I reached for the knob. My mother's room smelled like rose water. It was the only thing she used to wash her face, which was as lineless as lard and just as smooth. A woven basket filled with yarn and needles sat on her nightstand. Knitting was another activity that gave my mom something to do with her hands, although she never sat in the rocking chair as she worked. It was a peculiar sight to see her standing, yarn and needles in hand, with just her butt resting against the windowsill, her shoulders framed by the Santa Susana Mountains in the distance, as if she were holding the entire range aloft. But what was more peculiar that night was the sight of those fluffed pillows where no head had rested. The three doilies like oversized snowflakes placed on the smooth bed covers. From behind me came a rattling noise, like an overweight man struggling to breathe. 
I jumped, more afraid than I had been when I'd wakened from my dream. I turned around. Mother was propped in the corner by the edge of the dresser, nearly hidden by her open closet door. That choking noise was coming from her. Her eyes were closed. The closet door, nearly shielding her body, looked like the raised lid of a coffin. I didn't bother to wake her up, to ask why she wasn't asleep in her bed, lying down like a normal mother. What frightened me more than the woman I loved standing upright in a flannel nightgown snoring like an asthmatic man was that she had been asleep for hours on her feet. And she was smiling. I backed toward the open door and quickly left her bedroom. I never mentioned that night to anyone, not even to Trina. It was one of those painful and confusing discoveries I needed to keep to myself. Like finding out your mother is a thief, or smokes, or drinks whiskey from a jelly jar. I watched my neighbor's mothers carefully to see if they were always on their feet as well. But the women on my block were sitters on stoops, bus stop benches, on church pews, and on hard plastic laundromat chairs. The mothers of my classmates were no different. Whenever I went to Christy's house after school, we would find her mom sitting at a table playing bidwist with her friends. And whenever I spent the night at Becky's house, her mom lounged on the couch in a pink negligee doing crossword puzzles and smoking Marlboro cigarettes. In spite of her disability, my mother wasn't diminished in my eyes. She seemed whole to me, more whole than the woman at Bethlehem Church who knelt by the altar to pray. Mother's lips were always stretched in a wide smile, ready to laugh with you or joke with you or kiss away your tears. I grew defensive of her, as if she stuttered, ready to protect her from the taunts that were sure to come from the girls on my block when they discovered her condition. They noticed everything, especially the older girls. Every new hairstyle, every secret relationship, every zit. They wouldn't come right out and ask, why your mama can't sit down, Valise? No, they would couch their insults in a song as the double dutch rope beat a scornful melody on the asphalt. Mailman, mailman, do your duty. Here comes Posey with the big old booty. Left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. Here comes Posey, always standing round. Left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. Never touching ground because she can't sit down. But those taunts never came. Over the years, the neighborhood kids surely looked through our bay window and saw Mother's constant parade from the living room to the dining room to the kitchen, never once sitting on our green leather sofa or wicker chairs. They watched her at the wake for Miss Irene as she stood by the door of the funeral home greeting a stream of mourners, handing out fans with Martin Luther King's face emblazoned on the front. They saw her upright in her Sunday best at the side door of the high school auditorium, cheering and taking pictures as Trina walked across the stage to receive her diploma. No one mentioned that they never saw her sitting, and that they had never known her legs to bend. Years of vertical living didn't seem to weaken Mother. She still walked around as erect as ever in a print skirt and thrift store stockings two shades lighter than her skin. One night, I sat on Mother's bed as she leaned against the windowsill. She was sewing. 
I fingered the white organza that I would wear down the aisle in a few months, watching her quick fingers. Don't you ever get tired? I asked her. Of what? Busy work, I said. She smiled. Her moist brown skin as lineless as it was when I was eight. You know I love to sew. It won't be long now, baby. I know, mother, and I really appreciate you making my dress, but you never rest. Even her sighs smelled of rose water. Helping folks keeps me strong, she said. I patted the bedspread. Sit with me while you sew. She frowned, the first sign of irritation I noticed in a long time. I can't do that, Valise. Why not? I indicated the floral cover again. Rest a minute while you work. Those greenish-brown eyes singed my heart. The day I sit down is the day I die, she said, parking her needle in the stiff white material. Standing is in my blood. It was in your grandmother's blood. It's in yours, too. I swung my legs around on the bed, leaned back against the pillow as if testing this strange pronouncement. <laughs> it must have skipped a generation, I said with a laugh. Mother watched as I pulled first one leg, then the other to my chest. Her eyes dimmed, then she said, You can't stop the stiffening. It's in the blood. I sat up. What's stiffening? Mother resumed her sewing. After a few minutes of burying and retrieving the needle from the fabric, she said, Think of my mom, Hallie, baby. I thought of my mother's mother. Her thick gray hair was always wrapped in a scarf, whether she did day work or not. When I was a kid, I sometimes accompanied my mom to the homes of the Wozniaks and McCrackens, skipping my fingers along the sticky keys of her employer's grand piano as my grandmother mopped floors, wiped crumbs from an oak table. Whenever we rode those three buses across town to the valley, she stood in the aisle, pocketbook under one arm, the other arm holding the metal strap above her head, even when the bus was half empty. Standing's good for the heart, my mom used to say. Whenever Trina, mother, and I went to her house for a visit, my grandmother was always bustling around the kitchen quick to bring a steaming and pungent plate of collard greens to the table to serve us a slice of her famous orange pound cake. She was always upright, I said aloud. Always upright, Mother repeated with a sad smile. Gave birth standing up like a mare, same as me. I fell silent. That image rolled around in my head, bloody and throbbing. My mother and my grandmother had brought babies into the world on their feet. And while I knew women in some cultures preferred that birthing method, I knew no other woman in my family who did. As far back as I can remember, the only time I saw my mama lying down was when we buried her, mother said. I flexed my toes as if to flick away those awful words. That was the past. There has to be some medication to cure it now. I never trusted no doctor. Didn't want to be experimented on like a rat. I tried herbs, potions, even a recipe for a strengthening tonic that belonged to your great-grandmother, Annie Lou. Nasty stuff. 
It was some old concoction of nettle leaves, high john, root, garlic, and wormwood. She grimaced as if refusing a spoonful of the bitter mixture. Her legs, clad in beige stockings two shades lighter than her skin, seemed to lengthen as if bolstered by the remembrance. I'm going to fight this mother. I have a career. I design things. I can't stand around the agency all day. I had a career too, Valise. You think I love fixing food for other people? Always serving, always helping, always mixing batter. <laughs> Her laugh was edged with sorrow. She paused to rethread the needle, and those dainty fingers shook a little. I couldn't even cook when I met your father, but I learned you will too. I wanted to be a ballerina. I never knew you wanted to dance. I know you didn't, baby. Your daddy knew my secret and he took it to his grave. I didn't want nobody to pity me or for you girls to be teased. I know how vicious kids can be, she said. Out the window behind her, a car rumbled down the back alley, skittering gravel in its wake. I had to shape my life around the stiffening. The kitchen was like a pair of stockings or Mom Mom Hallie's earrings, something I wore to seem like a normal woman. I prayed things would be different for you and Trina, but it's not to be. I didn't want to say anything, not yet. But your sister called me a few days ago, crying. About what? I said, feeling as if my legs had already begun to tighten. Sensing my terror, Mother pushed away from the window ledge. She leaned forward to touch me. Her fingers grazed my hair like a robot programmed to comfort its human master, but lacking the capacity for empathy or love. Watching that awkward motion, I was transported back to my childhood. My mother had never stooped to pick me up, had never given me a bath, had never sat by my bedside to read me a story at night. Mother sighed. She was at evening service at Bethel and she went up to the altar, but she couldn't kneel down to pray. Later I think about our conversation while fingering the wedding dress Mother made. I'm standing in a small church on Adams Boulevard, half listening to the minister's words. My sister, my bridesmaid, moves like a woman on stilts in her lemon-colored dress, as if newly learning to navigate the floor. Across the room, Mother wipes away tears. Trina bought her a digital camera for Christmas, and she stands in the back of the sanctuary for the entire ceremony, crying and snapping pictures. Stiffening is in our blood, Mother said. An erect life. A life lived in kitchens, at counters, and in the back of buildings. Standing's good for the heart, Mom Mom Hallie used to say. She didn't look so healthy in her silver-blue casket. Her legs horizontal at last. Her skin had the ashen sheen of a defeated woman. My groom, Nathan, lifts my veil, and I give him a distracted kiss. I can't cook. I can barely make a bed, and I am not ready to embrace a life on my feet. Nathan threads his arm through mine, and we walk down the aisle to greet our well-wishers. It almost feels as if he's pulling me down the wine-red carpet, holding me up, but I know that isn't so. I will be upright for years to come. 
As we make our way to the back of the building, I feel a curious thickening in my legs. A melding of muscle and bone and blood. It seems as if everyone in the sanctuary can hear the hollow clicking of my knees locking into place. A wooden dirge that rivals the organist's upbeat song. I glance over at Mother standing near the door, the sleek black camera shielding her eyes like a mask. She lowers the camera and blows me a kiss. We are here today with Nicole Sconiers, the author of The Stiffening. Can you tell me a little bit about The Stiffening? Yes. Um, so The Stiffening is actually the first uh, short story that I wrote that doesn't specifically deal with race. Like a lot of my work, um, I examine themes of race, uh, racial injustice. And The Stiffening came about actually... Um, I saw an image, an illustration of a black woman, and I hate the term strong black woman, but there was this, I'll say powerful. I saw an illustration of a powerful black woman, and she, the way that she was just standing um, in this stance made me wonder, like, what would happen if she had to stand like that forever? So that made me want to explore, like, the idea of the stiffening. But it was actually um, more of wanting to examine uh, generational trauma because the story is what happens um, when generational um, trauma affects a family, uh, three um, generations of Black women. You said you wanted to sort of dive into intergenerational trauma in the story. You know, what, what made you want to get into that? I think a lot of families... Um, particularly families of color deal with generational trauma, whether it's alcoholism or abuse. And it's like an open secret. And I wanted to, I know I have some generational trauma. And rather than going into that, the stiffening felt like the space, the site where I could examine what happens to a young girl who is dealing with this odd secret in her family. Um, Belise, the protagonist, when we meet her, is eight years old, and she realizes that there's something wrong with her mom um, that's never discussed. Um, even though she feels there's something bizarre going on with her mom, she realizes that her mother is cheerful, she's, you know, uh, cooking every day for them, she's just being mom, but Belise knows that there's something um, darker going on with her mother. And to me, that's how a lot of families deal with generational trauma. You put on this smiling face, like everything is everything, but you don't talk about what's at the root of that um, dysfunction. What kind of got you started as a writer? How long have you been writing and you know, what, what drew you to horror? So I have been writing since I was eight, if you let my mom tell it. <laughs> and um, I actually remember being eight or nine years old and being so drawn to Stephen King and Dean Koontz um, that I love those books. And I was just drawn to the darker side of human nature. And so as a kid being bullied, I found my voice writing these 
obituaries, if you will. My mom would uh, say that I would write obituaries like Timmy got ran over by a school bus or um, Becky, you know, was murdered by her dad. And she's wondering, okay, do I need to get my daughter therapy? But those stories were cathartic for me. And um, the horror of those little obituaries gave me a voice that I didn't feel as an eight or nine year old kid growing up in a small town, being, you know, like one of the only um, black families growing up in a majority white uh, town. Right. So when did you start taking your writing more seriously? I would say when I graduated, um, actually when I went to grad school, let me back up. When I went to grad school, I started um, exploring speculative fiction and I was reading, I had been reading like Octavia Butler for years, but um, speculative fiction was speaking to me through the works of like Kit Reed or um, Isabella Allende. And so when I was in grad school, I wanted to examine themes of race, um, social injustice, and I thought that speculative fiction was the vehicle through which I could do that. Right, and I think you do that successfully. You know, I read one of your stories that was in Sycorax's Daughters. Um, yeah. Yeah, and that one, I loved, loved that story. Traveling culture vulture. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you said that you write, you typically write um, more racial stories, we'll yeah. say, um, and that the stiffening was kind of your first departure from you know, writing, you know, distinctly black stories. What would you say is your primary reason for writing black stories? I feel a lot of anger as a black woman. Sometimes I feel voiceless. And rather than walk around with that anger, and even though there is righteous rage about, um, body commodification, about culture vulturing, about um, just what we see going on in the era of Trump. Rather than walking around with that rage and feeling helpless, writing became the vehicle for me to um, express my anger in a way that wasn't preachy, was accessible. So in grad school, um, I started writing this collection, Escape from Beckyville, Tales of Race, Hair, and Rage. And it was a vehicle for me to talk about those things in a way that was darkly humorous, but at the same time, um, shown a spotlight on issues that we face as black women. I think that's fantastic. You know, it's, that's very similar to what drives me as well. Although I think I kind of started off, you know, not writing particularly quote unquote black stories. And, you know, now I've kind of shifted into that space, but I think it's important It's important for people to understand that Black horror isn't just about Black experiences. It's horror from a Black perspective. True. True. For me, it's important to always center Black women, even though it might not be, as you said, a typical quote-unquote Black story. I, I... all of my stories, most of my stories, just center Black women in our experiences. And I, you know, I won't apologize for that. You shouldn't, ever. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's, right. <laughs> that's right. So, 
where are you at with your career now? And, you know, where do you see yourself in a year or two? This has been, I'm going to get a little personal here. Okay. <laughs> um, I was actually living in L.A., um, you know, promoting Escape from Beckyville, doing readings in L.A. I had published a short, we had published in the um, anthology Stickerack's Daughters and was working on a collection of short stories um, in the same vein as Kim, like small town um, life, small town black life uh, through a speculative lens. But then my um, mother got sick, and so I uh, relocated to the East Coast. And so I put my writing on hold uh, for a while, um, dealing with family issues. But while I'm here on the East Coast, there has just been um, this desire to um, dive more deeply into my writing, if you will. Like for a while, I just was like, I'm done. I'm not writing. I'm just, you know, grieving, <laughs> so to speak. But then... It was just like writing. Um, it just it just liberates you. It it um, resurrects you, so to speak. And so I started writing um, short stories again. So I started working on that. Um, I just got a short story accepted in an anthology of Black women speculative Ooh. writers. So I'm excited about that. And um, my project of small town Black life speculative fiction is back on the table. So that's where I am right now. In the course of moving back to right. LA. Excellent. So so you want to move back to LA? Oh, I'm a Cali girl. Even though I grew up in a small town of like twenty two thousand people, like I like LA has <laughs> So do you want to do screenwriting in LA or are you one of those people that just you know want to move to LA because you actually like LA? I actually moved to LA to do screenwriting and I've written screenplays. I've had a, I've had a screenplay um, that was a semi-finalist for the Sundance Writers Lab. So I want to do it all. <laughs> to be honest with you, like writing TV pilots, um, short stories, feature films, whatever I can do that can not to give a voice to the voiceless and center black women. Like that's my mission in all the projects that I undertake. We'll have to say that it seems like we have similar goals and that we want to do everything. <laughs> but yeah. I want to write screenplays. I want to write books, you know, on TV, all of that. How do you, how do you manage all of those different aspects of your work, you know, without always working, you know, assuming that your family does want to see you sometimes like my family wants to see me. Right. Right. You know what? I'm still trying to find that work-life balance. I haven't perfected it, but what I I let the work direct me, so to speak. Like I started when I moved back to uh, Pennsylvania, and I had decided I'm not going to write again. Then, of course, I had an idea for a screenplay, <laughs> so I started working on the screenplay. And then after I got the draft of that completed. Um, the short story started calling me again. So I would try to set aside a couple of hours. I do my best writing at night. And so I would try to set aside a couple hours, like between 11 and like one, I'm a night owl, to get my writing done. But it's important for you, you know, like Virginia Woolf says, for a woman to have a room of her own, um, to just kind of get away from the noise and just um, connect with the work. Yeah, yeah. It's really difficult. I actually just um, some remodeling on my house, and I created a room for that. That's awesome. 
<laughs> you know, one, knowing that I was going to do this podcast, uh, well, right. maybe not this podcast. I didn't know that at the time, but I did know that I wanted to do a podcast. Um, right. So I had them blow insulation into the walls um, so that it can be bad a little bit. Uh, you're on to your work, <laughs> yeah. right? You're creating more work, but you're still on right. to your work. But, I mean, I, I wasn't writing for so long, you know, so this was, you know, this yeah. was just kind of something. It was like, you know, well, we're adding this room in and, you know, my husband mm-hmm. wanted, you know, fancy insulation in the walls just because he's fancy. And, right. <laughs> and I was like, I don't want to pay money for that. And then I thought, wait a minute, that's actually brilliant. I can go in there and I can close the door and, right. it, you know, it can just be quiet. I can use it as a reading room. I can write and it can just be my space because I haven't had my space in so long. And I think yes. that's the case for, for a lot of women, you know, especially women with, you know, husbands or partners or children. Right. You know, the whole house is kind of your domain so to speak, you know, it's, it kind of right. falls to us, you know, we're the ones that clean house, we're the ones that kind of straighten up around the house, um, you know, typically. And, and then you feel guilty yeah. when you're not able to put that time toward your yes. work. Yes. And if you have a space that no one else is allowed into, that is yours, right. that, you know, when you clean it up, it's because you made a mess, not because somebody else made a mess. Exactly. <laughs> and you can go in there and you can close the door and you can, you know, be something other than a wife and a mother and, you know, be what you want to be. I think, I think that's incredibly important. It is important. I, I, um, Gina Prince Bythewood, the filmmaker, was, um, I went to a 20 year screening of, um, Love and Basketball. It was the 20th anniversary. And someone asked her how she juggles it all, how she manages you know, how she has longevity in Hollywood. And she said that she realizes that there's something greater than herself. Like she has this greater purpose. The work has a greater purpose. And so for me, that helped put it into perspective when I feel tired or when I feel like, you know, I'm going through a period of grief. You know, I honor that grief. I honor being tired, but I also tell myself that the work has a larger purpose and that kind of helps guide me back on the path um, where I should be. Yeah. And I think that's something, you know, at least at first that I didn't realize as a writer, you know, me saying, you know, when I, when I first started writing that me taking time to write was a selfish act because, you know, it felt like something I needed to do for me and that I wanted to do for me. And um, I met Daniel Jose Older author yeah, of Shadow yeah. Shaper. I'll link that in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Amazing book. Um, you know, I, I met him at uh, the Texas Book Festival one year. And, you know, I, I told him, I was like, I don't, I'm having trouble reconciling this, you know, need to write. And then also, you know, looking at it as okay, you know, the universe, God, you know, whomever, or whatever you might subscribe to, you know, gave me this gift of, you know, using yes. words and, you know, being passionate about stories and writing, but these stories really help people. And it never occurred to me until that moment that they do and that, you know, stories change the world. And yes, using our voice is incredibly important. And I think that, it I think that that's what holds a lot of writers back is, you know, this idea that 
idea that it's a selfish pursuit and it's not. Yeah. And right, and yes. feeling guilt when you be quote unquote right. doing right. something. <laughs> Look, I'm writing to uh, better the world. So right. I think I'm <laughs> yeah. what you're doing is important. Uh, what would you say is the best story that you've ever written that you would recommend that everyone read? The best story that I've ever written. I don't think that I've written it yet, to be honest with you. I feel like I have a lot of story ideas in my head that I'm writing in my head that I'm, I'm, I struggle to get down. But um, to answer your question, in the short story collection, Escape from Beckerville, I wrote a story, Here Come the Janes, and it's about these hair vampires who terrorize black women. And I wrote that story like seven years ago before the whole, can I touch your hair? You know, going um, home, that was a thing. Right, right. That, <laughs> that story seems to resonate with a lot of people. So here come the James, here come the James, I would say, um, is the best story that I've written. So is that something that we can read somewhere? Yes, you can order it on my website. <laughs> awesome. All right. I will put a link to that in the show notes. Thank you. Um, what would you what would you recommend as like one of your all-time favorite pieces of black horror, whether it's a film or um a book, short story? Okay, so you asked me some hard questions right now. <laughs> There's so much to choose from. My all-time favorite book or short story. Um, I would have to say, um, the parable of the sower. Oh, yes. And the reason why I connected with that story so much is because of the, first of all, there was a youthful protagonist Mm -hmm. and I'm noticing in my own stories that my protagonists tend to be younger and younger. So I feel like that's something that I'm working out, Mm -hmm. but, um, just the idea of a youthful leader, like leading um, a generation away from like this old world into this like frightening new world. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, also, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say that that was one of my favorites uh, mm-hmm. when I first read it, but the older I get and, you know, the more I see what's going on in the world and especially, you know, since the last election, it's, uh, yeah, it, I feel like it's, you know, must read it. It's, it's not recommended. It's required. Absolutely. Absolutely. Once that if there's, you know, the apocalypse happens, I'm going to carry that book around as my survivor's manual. Exactly. Exactly. And like you said, it is, it is a hard work. Like I I wasn't thrilled about it at first, but as I grew and as I saw that kind of like what Octavia was prophesying, I'm like, Oh, okay. This is like a survival manual. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, and it's strange that, you know, typically you think of a good book as something that you read and you enjoyed. And when it was over, you closed it and you missed the characters and you yeah. definitely, you know, you wanted more right away. And most of the people that I talked to didn't necessarily fear, feel that way. And I, I, I think that's, I think that's an interesting aspect there that, you know, we, we define it as a good book, not because we resonated with the characters and wanted to spend more time with them, you know, which we did, but you know, there's, 
there's characters you want to spend more time with and there's you're like no i don't want to leave this world i don't want to go back to reality and you know that that book is definitely not you know i don't want to go back to reality um you know kind of book but it just stays in your mind and you think of it and the more you read it the more connections you see to what's going on in the world around you and i think like that's an outstanding feat for a writer to do that. It's timeless. It is really timeless. Yes. I mean, and if I ever achieve anything like that as a writer, and if I'm still alive, people aren't going to be able to tell me anything. <laughs> well, you know, I, speaking of Octavia, just reading about her journals and how she was so, I don't want to say lacking in confidence, but sometimes she doubted herself. She had some self-doubt, you know, and that makes her so human to me because as writers we do struggle like is my writing good enough you know I want to get the message that I'm trying to convey and just to see like this whole canon you know that Octavia inspired and wrote and how she struggled with that same self-doubt you know yeah that just like you said like like I want to follow in her footsteps (laughs) she was paved the way It's up to us to follow, follow in her footsteps. So, you know, you talked a little bit about, you know, the fact that she kind of doubted herself sometimes, you know, is that something that you struggle with? Absolutely. I um, got a rejection letter last year (laughs) for a short story that I submitted. And I tend to take it personally instead of just saying, okay, just submit more. Of course, if you submit one and you get rejected, it's going to feel horrible, you know, so just put your work out there more, you know, so I do, I do struggle with it. I actually have um, a friend of mine knew a, an editor at a science fiction magazine and she, and she loved my story, Here Come the James, and she recommended that I send it um, to this editor, the white male, <laughs> And so I'm like, yeah, she loves it. You know, this is going to be my, you know, entree into sci-fi. So I sent him the story and he sent me back this personal handwritten letter saying, you know, it just didn't grip me. (laughs) And I just felt so crushed, like, oh my gosh, I'm a horrible writer. And then after I, I had some, put some distance in between, you know, the letter, i I was like, why am I letting this white man <laughs> basically right. crush me? This is my experience. This is my truth, you know, and it doesn't matter if he approves right. or not. And of course, it's not going to resonate with so, him, you know, not necessarily exactly. even the, the audience that you're writing for. Exactly. But just the fact that here I am centering black w- women in this black universe, but I wanted this right. white man's approval. <laughs> So I'm like, Nicole, snap out of it, you know, just send it to somebody else, you know. So, so yeah, I do deal with rejection, but try to take Gina, Gina, um, Prince Brightwood's advice that there is a larger meaning behind the work. It's not about me. I try to take myself out of the equation and just be the best writer I can be and to just keep sending the work. And out. I think I, that's kind of interesting, you know, that you say that too, because, you know, there, Octavia, you know, if we read, you know, she, she wrote in her journals these positive affirmations, you know, that I will be a best-selling author. Yeah, you know, yeah, all of these wrote, things. And it was very much centered on 
on her, you know, there were a few things in there, you know, that, you know, she would change the world with her books and, and things like that. But most of it was centered on what she wanted to achieve, you know, like buying a home. Um, and I wanted to say like, she said something about buying a home for her mom. Her mother. Um, yes. Yes. So, you know, obviously she didn't remove her ego from it necessarily. And, you know, that seemed to work for her. So, you know, what do you think, you know, in terms of having that balance between writing for yourself and considering your voice to be important, because I think you have to have some sort of ego to be a writer, to think that your words can change the world. But then, you know, there's also this aspect of feeling like you are a tool being used to change the world. Right. How, do you, how do you balance that? I I like to say that I'm a vessel. So to me that removes ego because I like to I like to think that my characters talk to me like they um I guess bring themselves into existence so to speak. But at the same time I have to know that I'm a good writer. I can't be so super humble <laughs> that I don't believe in myself. I believe in my voice. I believe in my vision, but at the same time, I allow myself to uh, be flexible and grow. So if I'm writing a story and it feels like I'm imposing an agenda on it, or it feels like I'm writing with an eye toward the marketplace, then I have to take a step back and kind of recenter and make sure that I have the best intentions for this story. I I, I do believe that you have to... Um, embrace the fact that you are the bomb as a writer, you know, otherwise this industry will yeah. crush you, you know, there are a lot of people who write mediocre stories, but they have a huge following because they believe that, you know, they, they are just like the bomb. And right. what they do. <laughs> there are people who are like spectacular writers, but they don't have half the following because they kind of, um, shy away yeah. from their gift. Well, I think it's also, you know, I think there's an aspect of, you know, storytelling versus writing. You know, I think some people are really good at storytelling and not so great at the actual craft of writing. Absolutely. And, you know, commercially, I think a lot of those people tend to do a little bit better than ones who you know, might be superb writers, but aren't necessarily great storytellers. And I think striking the balance between the craft of writing and the act of storytelling is, you know, where you find that little sliver of success. So what can we do to support you? What can we buy of yours? What can, who can we send letters to? Yeah, you're amazing. Thank you for that. Um, if you go to my website, NicoleScanyers.com, um, there's a link where you can buy the book Escape from Becky Bill. I also believe it's on Amazon um, as well. Awesome. The digital version you can download from smashwords.com. Okay. And buy the book. All right. <laughs> Email me. Let me know your thoughts about Here Come the Janes. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate that you the work that you're doing. And I'm just so excited that my short story has found a home. Oh, thank life. you. Before we go, we'd like to thank our newest patrons, Tacey, Jennifer, Ebony, Tawana, and the I Found This Great Book podcast. 
Thanks to these lovely people, we've secured at least one episode per month. We're also so close to covering all the podcast expenses for one monthly episode, which means Nightlight will exist as long as we stay above that goal. We would love it if you could help us out, either by becoming a patron or by sharing the podcast and Patreon page with your friends and followers. Go to patreon.com slash nightlightpod to join us. We're also working on climbing the iTunes charts. By listening regularly and spreading the word, you can help us out. Tweet or post your favorite episode or leave a review on iTunes or Podchaser. With your help, we can reach number one. See you next week. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish.